You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and a hematologist and also an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Myeloproliferative neoplasms, including polycythemia vera, central thrombocythemia, myelofibrosis, are blood diseases that are frequently diagnosed in a community setting. And for many decades, there was not much to offer in terms of treatment other than phlebotomy or hydroxyurea. But what's been so exciting is how this field has blossomed because of a growing understanding of the biology of these diseases and also at the same time the uh, the promise of many new therapies. So today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Rajit Rampal who is an assistant member at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and the clinical director of the Leukemia Service at Sloan Kettering. Thanks for joining us Rajit. It's my pleasure, Ken. So I, I actually, I wanted to start up by asking you, uh, I was looking at a picture of you on the Sloan Kettering website. You're holding up a gel and you're analyzing it. And it made me maybe wonder what got you interested in this field in particular? Because there's so many things that, that any of us could do. So how did, how did you get into this field? I'd love to hear a little bit about your mentors and were there any patients that you look back now and you say, wow, that I was hooked after I uh, took care of uh, this person or people, patients? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. You know, I'm a physician scientist, and so my, my route into medicine was actually through science. And, you know, as a graduate student, I worked on basic biology of uh, cell signaling. But when I transitioned back to my clinical training... It was really, as a resident, when I was on the hematology oncology services, that I was most excited. I, I think I was very excited by most everything I did in medicine, but that was really the thing that was most interesting. And it was really uh, leukemia research that really caught my eye when I was at the University of Chicago and working with people like Wendy Stock and, and Richard Larson. When I came to Sloan Kettering uh, as a fellow, it was really apparent to me that leukemia is sort of where I wanted to go. And it really wasn't until I joined the lab of Ross Levine as a postdoctoral fellow that I became interested in myeloproliferative neoplasms, if we want to think about that as a, a chronic leukemia, as a question of interest both from the uh, scientific perspective, clinical perspective. And I think it was really the work that I have been doing uh, in the lab for the, the last probably 10 years now or so that got me interested in looking at this as a way to understand the disease not only, but also to develop new ways of treating patients. And once I was in my fellowship training and I began to actually take care of these patients, it sort of synced, right? I think a lot of people have that moment in their training where everything kind of comes together and you know, this is what I was meant to do. Yeah. And I think it was, you know, that transitioning into clinical care of these patients, having had this uh, robust background in, in science where everything sort of clicked for me. So let me ask you a little bit more about the connection between leukemia and myeloproliferative neoplasms, which 
It's an interesting to look, way to look at this as a, as in a sense, a chronic leukemia. If a patient, a new patient, asked you, you know, doctor, you you told me I've got P. vera or I've got essential thrombocythemia, do I have cancer? What do you respond? Where do uh, MPNs fit in the spectrum of blood diseases? That's a frequently asked question by patients. And on one hand, it is reasonable to say, well, you know what, it's semantics, right? Whether a patient wants to say, I have blood cancer or I have a blood condition or disorder, in a sense, is is dependent on how they perceive themselves and their disease, right? For some people, it is comforting to think about it as a blood disorder. For others, it's more black and white, and if, if we think it's a cancer, then they're okay with that title. My take on things, you know, from the biological perspective is that you have unregulated uh, gene expression caused by mutations, and, and to me, that is part and parcel of the definition of, of cancers. And so, in my mind, I think of these as cancers, but I think that from the patient's perspective, in some sense, it doesn't matter to people. In other sense, it's important to them how they label their disease. So I kind of leave it as a little bit of a, a philosophical discussion when it comes to talking to patients about it. Yeah, it's, it, certain types of situations are very clear. A woman has metastatic breast cancer or lung cancer, but I can see very much what you're saying. And it is an interesting uh, perspective of how patients want to perceive it or do perceive it. So let me ask you more about these diseases. What do they have in common? As you're uh, investigating these three diseases and, and treating patients, what are the similarities before we start really talking about some of the differences? Yeah, you know, I think collectively, when we think about MPNs and we talk specifically about polycythemia vera and uh, essential thrombocythemia and myelofibrosis, the things that these diseases have in common are that, A, they do appear to increase thrombotic risk in patients, uh, and in some patients, hemorrhagic risk, and B, that they are in large measure associated with a symptom burden, which may be mild in some patients, but can be really the, the major issue that a patient faces it with their disease. So I think there is, there's a spectrum of, of disease manifestations, but symptom burden is a key factor in all three of these entities. Put it into some perspective, I guess, for me and for the listeners, many uh, community practices are seeing patients with these diseases. You're obviously seeing a large number. So, for example, in your practice, if you looked at symptom burden, would the average patient have a significant symptom burden? Would they tend to have a, a low symptom burden? I'd be interested in your, your broader perspective on this. Yeah, I think that a large proportion of patients have a symptom burden. You know, what the, the degree of it, I think, varies amongst patients and, and amongst the disease phenotype. You tend to see more symptomatic individuals with myelofibrosis, not exclusively certain, but more often, uh, followed probably by polycythemia vera and, and maybe less so with, with uh, ET. But, you know, the, the things that we can counter frequently, and, and I think the data supports this, are things like fatigue, for example. People will complain of having a, a profound fatigue, and people describe it in a certain way, particularly people who are transfusion dependent. They can actually oftentimes delineate the difference between the fatigue that they have from anemia versus the fatigue that they just have from their disease at baseline. So it is important issue with patients. Other patients have manifestations such as muscle aches or headaches or uh, burning or tingling in their hands or feet. So there is a spectrum of manifestations. 
what's the basis of those symptoms? I mean, if it's, you know, if, uh, so you're basically saying some fatigue is from anemia, but what is the connection between the blood disease and how someone's feeling? That's, I think, a profound question for the field, right? It's speculated, and there is some data to back up the idea that this is cytokine-driven. And, mm-hmm. you know, when patients are on a JAK inhibitor for myelofibrosis, which has, uh, JAK inhibitors have been shown uh, r- repeatedly to decrease the symptom burden in patients with myelofibrosis, as an example, we see that there are dynamic changes in their blood cytokine levels. Now, Can we pinpoint a specific cytokine or a specific level that corresponds to a particular, you know, symptom profile or or symptom severity? That data is lacking at the moment, but certainly that is a a question of interest uh, to the field. So, and I wanted to ask you also an expression that I heard many years ago that has made a lot of sense to me is that cancer doesn't read the book. Meaning that you know we like to classify uh, cancers and or blood diseases or make a diagnosis based on criteria, but often there's uh, there's overlaps. And so I wanted to ask you about that too. We, we, I'm talking, and you you know sort of shared with us about three myeloproliferative disorders. Are there others, and do they blend? Is the diagnosis sometimes not exactly fitting by the uh, criteria? You know that phrase, the disease didn't read the textbook is sort of one of my favorite teaching phrases when, when I have the, the, the fellows in clinic, right? Because it's, we as humans try to categorize things and put them into very convenient boxes, and nature does not care what we think. Right. <laughs> so I, there, there absolutely is a spectrum in terms of presentation and, and disease overlap. We know that myelodysplastic syndromes often have features of myeloproliferative neoplasms and vice versa, right? And so we end up with diagnoses such as uh, MDS-MPN unclassified uh, or MDM, uh, MDS-MPN overlap or things like uh, chronic myelomonocytic leukemia that have essentially features of, of, of both diseases. And so that is sort of one end of the spectrum. Do we see people who don't have a clear-cut diagnosis of PV or ET but have a little bit of uh, features of both, i.e., do we have patients who have, you know, an elevated hemoglobin, hematocrit, and look like a polycythemia vera patient but don't quite meet the diagnostic criteria? Absolutely. Do we see sometimes, rarely, uh, patients who uh, start out with ET and the bone marrow looks like ET but actually begin to morph into uh, polycythemia vera, absolutely. So, so it's both a question of what happens at the time of diagnosis, right? You can have overlap features, but also what happens over time, because sometimes the diagnosis does begin to vary and change as you go along. Along the same lines, there's some patients who progress rapidly. There's some who pro- progress slowly. What is there that we know in terms of the molecular biology, the gene mutations? that has results in one patient going one direction and and another going in a different direction. Do we know? I think we know to some degree, right? What we've been able to do in terms of implementing what really has been a genomic revolution in the last 10 to 15 years in blood cancers in general is that we've been able to begin to risk stratify and understand that certain patients who have certain molecular profiles are more likely to progress Uh, than others. And and we've known that there are so-called high-risk mutations. 
that are associated with a higher likelihood of progression to leukemia or for just disease progression in general. And that list had stayed static for a number of years, but now is actually beginning to expand with some recent findings. Now, how does that explain the, the biology of the change of the disease? We have limited data thus far. We know that certain mutations like P53 mutations, which we've done a lot of work on in the lab, if you combine them with JAK mutations, mice get leukemia, which is very much what we see happen in patients. With other uh, high-risk mutations, we haven't quite seen that occur, meaning that if we mix uh, two different mutations in mice, do they get you know, disease progression and transformation of leukemia? Not necessarily. So what that says to us is that the presence of the mutations is clearly a factor in progression, but there must be other elements uh, that go along with it that uh, result in disease progression. And that is a major uh, area of, of uh, research focus. I saw one of your articles on epigenetics, and for the listener, and, and for me as well. Tell us more. Firstly, what is epigenetics, and how does it impact the clinical course in patients with MPNs? Yeah, so you know, epigenetics, I think, broadly are, refers to uh, genomic changes that don't have to do with the DNA sequence code itself. And so this can be things like uh, methylations or alterations in uh, the modifications to histones. And this is a, a very rich area of uh, investigation. It has been known for some time that, uh, for example, in acute leukemia, one can stratify patients and their outcomes based on the epigenetic signature. How does that influence outcomes in MPNs? I think the answer at the moment is that we don't have a clear answer. There has been some uh, limited data to date uh, demonstrating that patients with different MPN subtypes can have a different epigenetic profile, usually by methylation uh, profiling. But what causes that and, and what is the impact on, on the disease? I think those are uh, areas that are uh, under investigation. So I want to take advantage of uh, having you as an expert on the phone. I've got another clinical question about these diseases. And again, sort of the, I'll call it perineoplastic uh, phenomena. Patients with P. vera, for example, or have the JAK2 mutation. I saw a woman recently who presented with a portal vein thrombosis with absolutely normal blood counts in every way, but she's JAK2 positive. Any hypothesis? What's the mechanism there? Yeah, so, so this has been, uh, I think, one of the fundamental questions uh, in, in the field. Why are these patients hypercoagulable? And certainly there has been a lot of variation in terms of uh, association with blood counts. Do people with high platelets have a higher risk of thrombosis? The answer is that there doesn't appear to be a clear correlation. But there is a very interesting paper that came out of uh, Ben Ebert's lab, uh, I think last year in Science Translational Medicine, looking at what are called neutrophil traps uh, that seem to be associated with JAK mutations and occurring in patients uh, with MPN. And, and so it may actually be the leukocytes uh, that are mediating thrombosis rather than uh, you know high platelets or increased uh, blood viscosity from having a high hematocrit. You know, this is uh, there's a lot of other hypotheses as well that have been uh, that are being explored. Uh, so so. Uh, I think there's more to learn here, but at least that is an interesting major hint that leukocytes may be driving this. So, and I also want to pass on some questions from a colleague as well. What can you tell us about CalR and MPL, which are mutations that I, I think most of us in the community setting see less commonly? 
Yeah, so the fundamental driver of, of these diseases is activation of the JAK STAT pathway. So JAKs are non-receptor tyrosine kinases, and they uh, dimerize in response to exogenous signals. They complex with things like the erythropoietin receptor, but also the thrombopoietin receptor. The thrombopoietin receptor is MIPL, or MPL. Mm -hmm. And so it, of course, makes sense that mutations in JAK activate the pathway, but also that mutations in MIPL, which are essentially upstream of JAK, also activate this pathway and, and can also cause an MPN. Calreticulin is, is very interesting. Uh, it, mutations were only discovered a couple of years ago, and it appears that calreticulin complexes with MIPL and can result in aberrant trafficking and activation of, of the receptor. So it's sort of an elegant story in the sense that all of the mutations affect the same pathway and can result in a more or less similar phenotype, which is sort of biologically satisfying. But those are really the three main driver mutations. Th that being said, there are still about you know 10 to 12 percent of patients where we haven't been able to identify a, a driver mutation to explain a patient's disease. So we were talking about about patients who clinically may have a myeloproliferative disorder, but who don't have one of these three gene markers. What do you do in that case? It's an interesting question, right? It, it, in part, it depends on the disease phenotype. Patients who uh, have all the features of myelofibrosis, I think we know to expect that you know 10% of those patients are quote-unquote triple negative, and so if they have disease manifestations that fit, uh, and also have some other clonal marker, be it a, a cytogenetic abnormality or, or a, a gene mutation, I think we feel comfortable with calling the diagnosis. The situation is a little bit more challenging in, in patients uh, with ET and PV because we've certainly all seen patients who have uh, an elevated platelet count that is sustained for a number of years. We do all of the battery of testing for mutations and we find nothing and the bone marrow comes back somewhat equivocal, the, the megakaryocytes don't quite look normal. What do you do with that? And do you call that patient uh, triple negative ET? That's a little bit more of a challenging case. And I think that what we've tended to do is, is sort of label these patients likely ET and, and watch them and, and in many cases manage them as we would an ET patient. The same thing is true of a very small number of polycythemia vera patients where uh, you do all of the molecular testing and even do a bone marrow and the marrow seems to support a diagnosis of, of polycythemia vera but we don't find uh, the, the driver mutation. Uh, and so in, in many of those cases we just end up managing uh, them as if they fulfilled all of the criteria but those are, those are challenging cases. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they are. In terms of the 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 goals of therapy, you know, we talk about uh, in very broad terms, uh, uh, curative intent, palliative intent. When you're taking care of a patient with an MPN, what is the goal of therapy? What is the goal of care? Yeah, I think it, it depends on the disease, right? If we're dealing with uh, essential thrombocythemia or polycythemia vera, our major goals are two. One is to reduce the risk of thrombosis, and the second is to alleviate the symptom burden. I think those are really things that drive our, our management of these patients. The situation, by contrast, is different with patients with myelofibrosis, where we know that uh, among these diseases, myelofibrosis is the most likely to shorten a patient's life expectancy. It has the highest rate of transformation to leukemia. And in those patients, it really depends on the severity of their disease. 
we know that those patients who have what we would term uh, intermediate or high risk of progression to leukemia are people who we have to think about for stem cell transplantation. And that is, uh, to, to, to borrow your phrasing, that is curative intent, right? We know that we can cure a certain proportion of those patients with transplant. On the other hand, there are people with myelofibrosis who have a very low risk score and are likely to do well for a decade or more without intervention. And in those patients, uh, it's really about optimizing their thrombotic risk and, and managing their symptom burden as one would do with an ET or PV patient. I want to go back and focus on JAK2, which I think the way you described it is probably very, very, very central to these disorders. How does ruxolitinib work? And I'm also very interested in uh, what's new in terms of other drugs or drug combinations. Yeah, so ruxolitinib is a JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor. It is non-selective, meaning that it will uh, inhibit both wild-type and mutant JAK2. The drug uh, has on-target effects, therefore, of, of causing thrombocytopenia and anemia. But in terms of its clinical benefit, what it has been demonstrated to do is to uh, reduce the spleen size in patients with myelofibrosis and also polycythemia vera, and to reduce the symptom burden uh, significantly compared to control uh, in patients with, with myelofibrosis. It's uh, FDA-approved for the treatment of myelofibrosis and also for polycythemia vera in patients who have failed or in, are intolerant of hydroxyurea. For many years, we didn't have a, a salvage option once people failed ruxolitinib. But that changed in the fall of, of 2019 when fidratinib, which is a JAK2 inhibitor, was approved by the FDA. That drug had been in, in uh, clinical development for many years, uh, but finally was approved. Per the label, it can be used uh, apparently up front, but also in the salvage setting. And so that's, that's where we are with conventional approved therapy. Um, but clearly, we know that patients often need something more. We know that a, a, a large proportion of patients uh, by 18 months of being on, on ruxolitinib will come off of therapy. And so the efforts have really been to develop combination strategies whereby we add a drug to ruxolitinib or to try to come up with novel therapeutics that, that aren't JAK-STAT inhibitors. There were a lot of interesting uh, presentations at ASH this year uh, looking at combination strategies, and that included uh, drugs like uh, CPI-610, which is a BET inhibitor in combination with ruxolitinib, as well as uh, Nivitaclax, which is a BCL2-BCLX inhibitor mm -hmm. uh, that was studied in combination with ruxolitinib. So those are two drugs that showed some promising data in combination with ruxolitinib. The CPI-610 BET inhibitor has also been tested as a, as a monotherapy uh, in patients who have failed ruxolitinib, and, and those data continue to emerge. We've had other drugs like telomerase inhibitors and MDM2 inhibitors that have in clinical testing and development and awaiting further data on, on all of those. But it's an interesting and, and exciting time in this field because we now have a, a lot of different strategies that are being clinically tested. So let me ask you about quality of life while on treatment, especially in regards to, you know, what are the side effects that patients experience and how do you as a clinician try to minimize those? Yeah, it's it, it, like everything else, you know, it's highly variable. 
Patients who are on things like hydroxy oftentimes have no symptoms, but we know 20% of patients or so will have uh, oral ulcers or, or fevers or uh, GI intolerance. With ruxolitinib and vidratinib, there's varying degrees of GI toxicity, but uh, it, it's uh, certainly not the majority of patients, but it, it certainly can occur. Interferons, we tend to use often in, in polycythemia and, and uh, uh, central thrombocythemia, and, and those can be associated with flu-like symptoms. I think, you know, as with everything in medicine, the, the goal is to tailor your intervention to the patient's side effects. Uh, I haven't found that there's a sort of one-size-fits-all for management of side effects in, in patients on these various therapies, but I think, you know, it's important that we listen carefully to the patient, understand what is really affecting their quality of life, and come up with our strategies to mitigate those as best we can. You know, um, it's interesting hearing you talk about interferon. I know some of the listeners, uh, like myself, had used it for CML years and years ago. And I'm thinking about the, the issue. Obviously, when patients go on Gleevec, we, you know, we hope they'll actually go into remission and a molecular remission. When we put patients on a JAK2 inhibitor, I, my understanding is it's, that's extremely, that's rare. Is interferon still a, a reasonable option for some patients with MPNs? I think it absolutely is. And along those lines, do any obtain a, a molecular remission? Yeah, so often what is observed is that there's a decrease in the in the jack allele burden or even calreticulin or mipple allele burden with interferon. There have been some reports of, of patients achieving a uh, molecular remission. I think we just have to be very cautious about that because the definition is fluid, meaning that if the sensitivity of one's assay is 5% variant allele frequency, and it goes below that, you could call that a molecular remission, but it might just be that your test is not sensitive. So I'm uh, always a little bit cautious about the definition of, of molecular remission. There is, you know, a new interferon that was approved in Europe called ROPEG interferon, and that has demonstrated versus hydroxyurea to be superior in terms of controlling blood counts. Whether or not that will translate into deeper molecular, I guess, decreases in variant allele frequency or potentially even molecular remissions, I think that data is emerging. But certainly there is a great deal of historical literature to support the idea that interferons can decrease the JAK2 uh, allele burden. I want to ask you just one last question, which is what resources or supports are available for patients and families dealing with MPNs? You know, whenever I meet a patient who is newly diagnosed, this is, I think, one of the fundamental discussions that we have with the patient. Um, I always remind the patient that the internet is a dangerous place. And, you know, if, if one goes and, and just does Google searches on these diseases, one will find some things that are not great. And I think it's important that patients have access to well-vetted information from experts. Towards that end, uh, the resources I tend to point patients towards are certainly uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, the MPN Research Foundation, and also patient advocacy groups like uh, MPN Advocacy, right? I think these are all important things that provide patients with information about their diagnosis, but it also provides them in some sense with a sense of community. These are rare diseases, and you know this is the difference between a disease like polycythemia and, and uh, vera and, and breast cancer, where most everybody knows somebody probably who's had breast cancer, but how many people know someone who's had polycythemia vera, right? Not that many. 
Right. And I think that's the, an important part of, of connecting patients to these types of groups is that they know that there's other people with the same diagnosis and potentially with the same struggles, and it gives them uh, an opportunity in some cases to connect. I think that's, that's very important. Well, I want to say this has been a, a really excellent uh, opportunity and, and a great, great discussion about an interesting and complex topic. Again, this is Dr. Ken Miller, and I am a, an oncologist and a volunteer for LLS. And today we're joined by Dr. Rajit Rampal, who is a medical oncologist and hematologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering and clinical director of the Leukemia Service. Rajit, thank you so much. Ken, my pleasure. Thank you all for listening uh, to this informative and really interesting podcast. For more information on MPN resources, please visit us at www.lls.org forward slash MPN. And for a listing of all of our healthcare professional podcasts, continuing education activities, and healthcare professional resources, visit www.lls.org forward slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment options, as well as financial and other support resources. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.